Hey, you found us. Welcome, everybody. This is Scripture Gems. Hello, and welcome to the show. My name is John Fulmer, and this is my brother, Jay. How's it going, John? We are two brothers who just can't get enough of the scriptures. Yeah, we love them. This episode, we are going over the Come Follow Me lesson for January 4th through 10th, 2021. This is covering Joseph Smith history, verses 1 to 26. And now let's bring out the star of the show, the scriptures. Looking good scriptures. You know, the scriptures are looking a little younger than last year. Yeah, a little bit. They sure are going to be an important part of this show. And now let's consult the Scripturematic 6000 to find out how long it will take to read this week's reading. 16 minutes, 4 seconds. Fantastic. How does that break down to daily reading? That's 2 minutes, 18 seconds. Oh, so easy. Now, we've got time codes here. Although we only have the one set of verses that we're talking about, we're going to talk a little bit about reading resources and some history behind the Joseph Smith history. So you can jump to any of these in the time codes. So this lesson is all about the first vision. Oh, wonderful. If you guys don't know, John and I created a video on the great apostasy. What's so great about it? It will help to set the stage for this lesson. It takes you through the prelude to Christianity, and then on up through the centuries to eventually the restoration in colonial America. So if you're interested in the topic, highly recommend you check that out. Very true. And speaking of things to recommend, there is so much that is available to us now if we really want to study the first vision of Joseph Smith. It's incredible to me. And we're not going to cover everything, but we have some favorites that we wanted to include. Mm -hmm. So first of all, what we're going to read today is an obvious first choice. Joseph Smith history from the Pearl of Great Price, verses 1 to 26. That's a great place to go. You know, that'll only take you 16 minutes and four seconds to read it. That's what I've heard. And just a little over two (laughs) minutes a day. Yeah. I don't don't know where I heard that. I'm sold. The other thing to look into is in the Gospel Library, and this is true on the website as well as in the app. If you look at Restoration and Church History, there's a section called First Vision. And this is really neat. It includes a really good introduction. It includes the Ask God Joseph Smith's First Vision video. This is a video that's currently playing at the Church History Museum. It's very neat. It also includes all four of Joseph Smith's first-hand accounts of the First Vision. You know, in the church, we often just read the Joseph Smith history account in The Pearl of Great Price, but this was the third and really the most detailed account of the four accounts. There are three other accounts, and they are worth reading. There's the 1832 account, which is in Joseph Smith's own handwriting, the 1835 journal entry account, the 1838 account, which we're going to go over today, and the 1842 account, which is part of the Wentworth letter. It also includes links to all six episodes of The First Vision, a Joseph Smith Papers podcast. And this is great, great stuff if you really want to dive deep. Yeah. Now, if you go to those pages, you'll find that the info isn't necessarily on there, but that will link you to the Joseph Smith Papers Project where you can listen to the audio. But if you're interested in video versions, BYU TV did a whole series on the Joseph Smith Papers, and there are five parts, five episodes, and the episodes are pretty short, that cover the first vision and the various accounts where you have scholars getting to talk about 
the lens through which Joseph might be looking at the event as described in those accounts. Very interesting. We'll put a link in the description. But that's not all. There's also Saints Volume 1, Chapter 2, Hear Him. Chapter 1 would be good to read, too. Well, really the whole book. It's a great book. (laughs) It's a great book. But specifically for First Vision, Chapter 2. Church History in the Fullness of Times. This is the Institute Manual for Church History. Chapter 3, The First Vision. Yeah, Great account. This is a book that John and I have referenced before. We're going to reference it again. We're big fans Mm -hmm. of the Church History in Fullness of Times. It's a wonderful way to go through church history. There's also Joseph Smith's First Vision by Stephen C. Harper. This is something that would be available through Deseret Book or something like that. Stephen Harper takes all of the accounts that we have, the four firsthand accounts and the five secondhand accounts, and goes over them in a really scholarly way. It's a great book. Well, just remember that Stephen C. Harper is from the Church History Department. That's true. And last but not least, the Joseph Smith Papers Project has a page dedicated called Accounts of Joseph Smith's First Vision. This includes all four of Joseph's firsthand accounts as well as the five secondhand accounts, and it has links to high-quality scans of the original documents. This is really, really neat. That's one of the things that is so cool. If you're not familiar with the Joseph Smith Papers project, we'll link to it in the description. But getting to look at these scans of so many original documents and journals and writings, it, it just it's really a great connection to history. Indeed. So, Jay, where did the Joseph Smith history come from that we have in the Pearl of Great Price? I don't know, John. Where did it come from? Well, it turns out that it comes from a larger volume called History of the Church. This is a seven-volume set that was compiled from 1838 to 1856, first published in 1858 through Brigham Young as History of Joseph Smith. But later, the name was changed to History of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, often shortened to just simply History of the Church in 1902 by Elder B.H. Roberts. The history contains the text of many revelations in the Doctrine and Covenants as well, and part of this history was published in the church's publication, Times and Seasons, 1st of March in 1842. In 1851, Elder Franklin D. Richards took a segment from the Times and Seasons issue and published it in England as part of the very first Pearl of Great Price. Yeah, and we'll get a chance, I think, at some point to talk about how important the English mission was as far as pulling together and forming what we call today the Pearl of Great Price. So what a treasure. Indeed. So to start off, I wanted to summarize the importance of everything that has historically led up to this first vision. There's a quote that I found in the Old Gospel Doctrine Manual from Elder M. Russell Ballard. This is from the October 1994 General Conference. But before I give you this quote, I would again encourage you, as Jay did earlier in the episode, to look into the great apostasy, what's so great about it video that we had put together. It really helps put everything in context. But Elder Ballard, in speaking of Martin Luther and other reformers, says, quote, I believe these reformers were inspired to create a religious climate in which God could restore lost truths and priesthood authority. Similarly, God inspired the earlier explorers and colonizers of America and the framers of the Constitution of the United States to develop a land and governing principles 
to which the gospel could be restored. By 1820, the world was ready for the restitution of all things spoken of by Peter and all God's holy prophets since the world began, end quote. So let's get started with Joseph Smith history. I forget what chapter we're on. John, what chapter are we on? <laughs> okay, there's only, there's only one, one chapter. chapter. That's silly. So in the first two verses, it's great to ask the question, why did Joseph write this account? And he tells us that his writing is due to, in verse 1, the many reports which have been put in circulation by evil disposed and designing persons. And that for that reason, he has been induced to write this history to disabuse the public mind, love that phrase, disabuse the public mind and put all inquirers after truth in possession of the facts. Elder Dallin H. Oaks, in an address to CES religious educators in August 16, 1985, in a talk called Reading Church History, he says, Latter-day Saint readers should be sophisticated in their evaluation of what they read. Our Heavenly Father gave us powers of reason, and we are expected to use them to the fullest. But he also gave us the Comforter, who he said would lead us into truth, and by whose power we may know the truth of all things. That is the ultimate guide for Latter-day Saints who are worthy and willing to rely on it. Yeah, fans of the show may remember that we've talked frequently about the notion of having three ways to divine truth. Our physical senses, our intellectual reasoning, and revelation. And all three need to work together for important spiritual truths. Well, and to Elder Oaks's point, we need to be sophisticated in evaluation, not even just of what we read, but what we see. The world is filled with information that we have to disseminate as to what's really true, whether it regards the secular world or uh, the church. And so, yeah, let's take ownership of that and be true to the resources for truth that we've been given. Now, Jay mentioned Joseph Smith's words about many reports having been put in circulation by evil disposed and designing persons. The Church History in the Fullness of Times manual talks about specifically what those things might have been. It says, quote, from the outset, the church had an unpopular public image that was added to by apostates and nurtured by the circulation of negative stories and articles in the press. People gave many reasons for apostatizing. For example, Norman Brown left the church because his horse died on the trip to Zion. Joseph Wakefield withdrew after he saw Joseph Smith playing with children upon coming down from his translating room. Simon's writer denied Joseph's inspiration when writer's name was misspelled in his commission to preach. Others left the church because they experienced economic difficulties. Ezra Booth, a former Methodist minister, was an influential apostate during this period, the early 1830s. He published nine letters in the Ohio Star in Ravenna from 13 October to 8 December 1831, detailing his objections to the church. These letters later became a major section of the first anti-Mormon book published in 1834, end quote. It's fascinating that the first anti-Mormon book was published so soon after the yeah. church was established. It didn't take long. No. Now, it's important to remember that this history is being written in 1838. This is 18 years after the event happened. Yeah. Contrary to what we might envision and think, this was 
not an experience that Joseph talked about openly. It was very sacred. Mm-hmm. So going on in the next couple of verses, Joseph gives his birth date, place, and information about his family. Now, here's something interesting. The church has included in the Come, Follow Me manual a special segment sometimes called Voices of the Restoration. And if you look at your manual, you'll see that there is a segment in this lesson called Voices of the Restoration, Joseph Smith's Family. And there are segments of quotes from each of his family members talking about things that set the stage for this discussion. We really encourage you to take some time with your family and read these. They're really neat. Yeah, they're well worth your time. Well, all right, let's start in verse 5. Sometime in the second year after our removal to Manchester, there was in the place where we lived an unusual excitement on the subject of religion. It commenced with the Methodists, but soon became general among all the sects in that region of country. Indeed, the whole district of country seemed affected by it, and great multitudes united themselves to the different religious parties, which created no small stir and division amongst the people, some crying, Lo here! and others, Lo there! Some were contending for the Methodist faith, some for the Presbyterian, and some for the Baptist. By the way, If you're interested, for more information on the churches of Joseph Smith's day or the religious beliefs that are part of his day, check out those topics in the Church History Topics section in your Gospel Library app. Both of those topics have great articles that will be really interesting to discuss with friends and family. Going on with verse 6. For notwithstanding the great love which the converts to these different faiths expressed at the time of their conversion— and the great zeal manifested by the respective clergy, who were active in getting up and promoting this extraordinary scene of religious feeling, in order to have everybody converted, as they were pleased to call it, let them join what sect they pleased. Yet, when the converts began to file off, some to one party and some to another, it was seen that the seemingly good feelings of both the priests and the converts were more pretended than real. For a scene of great confusion and bad feeling ensued, priest contending against priest and convert against convert, so that all their good feelings, one for another, if they ever had any, were entirely lost in a strife of words and a contest about opinions. Looking ahead to verse 8, During this time of great excitement, my mind was called up to serious reflection and great uneasiness. But though my feelings were deep and often poignant, still I kept myself aloof from all these parties, though I attended their several meetings as often as occasion would permit. In process of time, my mind became somewhat partial to the Methodist sect, and I felt some desire to be united with them. But so great were the confusion and strife among the different denominations that it was impossible for a person young as I was, and so unacquainted with men and things, to come to any certain conclusion who was right and who was wrong. My mind at times was greatly excited. The cry and tumult were so great and incessant. The Presbyterians were most decidedly against the Baptists and Methodists, and used all the powers of both reason and sophistry to prove their errors, or at least to make the people think they were in error. On the other hand, the Baptists and Methodists in their turn were equally zealous in endeavoring to establish their own tenets and disprove all others. In the midst of this war of words and tumult of opinions, I often said to myself, what is to be done? 
who of all these parties are right? Or are they all wrong together? If any of them be right, which is it? And how shall I know it? And this is what leads to one of the most amazing parts of the restoration for me. You know, the first vision is an incredible experience. But this, to me, feels what's coming up in verses 11 and 12 feels the most personal. The thing that I can most relate to. Is it because this has to do with the New Testament book of James? Hey, uh, no. (laughs) But now that you mention that, as a James myself, I could see why he'd find that so valuable. Let's take a look at it in verse 11. While I was laboring under the extreme difficulties caused by the contests of these parties of religionists, I was one day reading the Epistle of James, great book, first chapter and fifth verse, which reads, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. Never did any passage of Scripture come with more power to the heart of man than this did at this time to mine. It seemed to enter with great force into every feeling of my heart. I reflected on it again and again, knowing that if any person needed wisdom from God, I did. For how to act I did not know, and unless I could get more wisdom than I then had, I would never know. For the teachers of religion of the different sects understood the same passages of Scripture so differently as to destroy all confidence in settling the question by an appeal to the Bible. So what's to be done? Let's move on to verse 14. So in accordance with this, my determination to ask God, I retired to the woods to make the attempt. It was on the morning of a beautiful clear day, early in the spring of 1820. It was the first time in my life that I had made such an attempt, for amidst all my anxieties, I had never as yet made the attempt to pray vocally. Now, quick aside here, We don't know the actual date of the first vision. We just know that it was on a spring day in 1820. And I want to remind you that the earliest first-hand account of this vision was done in 1832. That was still 12 years after the event. There has been a video recently released, though, from John Lefgren and John Pratt, and they have made a case for the date being March 26, 1820. It's an interesting watch, It's not a completely solid case, but I think they've given us a lot to think about. We'll include a link in the description. Going on with verse 15. After I had retired to the place where I had previously designed to go, having looked around me and finding myself alone, I kneeled down and began to offer up the desires of my heart to God. Now I'm going to take a brief break here. I wanted to include a little segment from the 1835 account. Again, a lot of us really know the Pearl of Great Price account very well, but these smaller accounts also add some extra flavor to the story. It says, quote, I made a fruitless attempt to pray. My tongue seemed to be swollen in my mouth so that I could not utter. I heard a noise behind me, like some person walking towards me. I strove again to pray, but could not. The noise of walking seemed to draw nearer. I sprung up on my feet and looked around, but saw no person or thing that was calculated to produce the noise of walking. And then going back to the 1838 account, in verse 15, I was seized upon by some power which entirely overcame me 
and had such an astonishing influence over me as to bind my tongue so that I could not speak. Thick darkness gathered around me, and it seemed to me, for a time, as if I were doomed to a sudden destruction. Now, at this point, it might be worth asking some questions about the techniques that Satan is using here to stop the event that's about to happen from happening. So what do you see in these accounts? What tools did Satan use to try to stop Joseph from turning to God? I notice in the 1835 account, distraction, and I can relate to that. Sometimes it's hard to concentrate when you're trying to call upon the powers of heaven. And so little noises, especially when they creep toward fears, which is the next thing. Why did Satan use fear to stop Joseph from praying? There's many tools one could use, but it's been proposed that fear is the opposite of faith. And it's interesting how much fear stops us from doing anything. And Satan understands the power of that tool. And I guess he hoped it would work. Let's take a look at what happened, though, in verse 16. But exerting all my powers to call upon God to deliver me out of the power of this enemy which had seized upon me, and at the very moment when I was ready to sink into despair and abandon myself to destruction, not to an imaginary ruin, but to the power of some actual being from the unseen world who had such marvelous power as I had never before felt in any being. Just at this moment of great alarm, I saw a pillar of light exactly over my head above the brightness of the sun, which descended gradually until it fell upon me. It no sooner appeared than I found myself delivered from the enemy which held me bound. When the light rested upon me, I saw two personages, whose brightness and glory defy all description, standing above me in the air. So let's just pause there for a minute. Yeah, let's take a little segment from the 1832 account. He says, quote, My mouth was opened, and my tongue liberated, and I called on the Lord in mighty prayer. A pillar of fire appeared above my head. It presently rested down upon me and filled me with joy unspeakable, end quote. This leads us into a second-hand account from Orson Pratt in 1840, where he says, quote, He at length saw a very bright and glorious light in the heavens above, which at first seemed to be at a considerable distance. He continued praying while the light appeared to be gradually descending towards him, and as it drew nearer, it increased in brightness and magnitude, so that by the time it reached the tops of the trees, the whole wilderness for some distance around was illuminated in a most glorious and brilliant manner. He expected to have seen the leaves and boughs of the trees consumed as soon as the light came in contact with them. But perceiving that it did not produce that effect, he was encouraged with the hopes of being able to endure its presence. It continued descending slowly until it rested upon the earth, and he was enveloped in the midst of it. When it first came upon him, it produced a peculiar sensation throughout his whole system, and immediately his mind was caught away from the natural objects with which he was surrounded, and he was enwrapped in a heavenly vision and saw two glorious personages who exactly resembled each other in their features or likeness." End quote. 
That's a beautiful description. It is. So he saw two personages. Now, this is very significant because the popular opinion of the day that I received from my Protestant brethren while I was on my mission was that God was three people but one person and everywhere but nowhere and large enough to fill the universe but small enough to fit in your heart. So, right, as John's saying, the idea of the Trinitarian understanding, or I should say the creedal Trinitarian understanding, meaning the Trinity as defined by early Christian creeds, which has a lot of support in mainstream Christianity, although not entirely universal, is the idea that the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost are three distinct personages in one substance or being. And that word gets tricky to translate. But what Joseph is seeing is not that. Interestingly enough, though, this concept, this challenge to the creedal understanding of the Trinity didn't start with Joseph. No, it didn't. As a matter of fact, in the 10th century AD, the Catholic Church established more formally a day called the Feast of the Holy Trinity or Trinity Sunday. This is the first Sunday after Pentecost. This is a day set aside specifically to celebrate the notion of the creedal trinity. This was needed to help unify the faith as there were those who were questioning that notion. For a more specific example, Sir Isaac Newton, quote, saw two major flaws in the Christian doctrine of the trinity. It was unsupported from the scriptures and it was illogical. Newton used scriptural passages to demonstrate that Trinitarian doctrine was incorrect and that the scriptures instead taught that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost are separate and distinct beings, three members of the Godhead, end quote. That, by the way, was an article called A Brief Survey of Sir Isaac Newton's Views on Religion by Stephen E. Jones at BYU. We'll put a link up. Oh, yeah, you'll enjoy that. You know, we stopped at one of the great moments. These two beings have appeared to Joseph, but what did they say? Let's finish that verse. One of them spake unto me, calling me by name, and said, pointing to the other, This is my beloved son. Hear him. In the 1832 account, Joseph offers some additional insights. He says, I was filled with the Spirit of God. And the Lord opened the heavens upon me, and I saw the Lord. And he spake unto me, saying, Joseph, my son, thy sins are forgiven thee. Go thy way, walk in my statutes, and keep my commandments. Behold, I am the Lord of glory. I was crucified for the world, that all those who believe on my name may have eternal life. And that, by the way, is interesting to point out. We didn't really talk about this, but the 1838 account really focuses on his desire to know which church to join. But we know that he also was really struggling with what was his condition, what was his state before God. And this is something that many great Christians throughout history had struggled with as well. And I love that Joseph's story really begins with that too. Am I in a right state before God? And he gets the answer. Going on in verse 18, my object in going to inquire of the Lord was to know which of all the sects was right, that I might know which to join. No sooner, therefore, did I get possession of myself so as to be able to speak than I asked the personages who stood above me in the light which of all the sects was right, for at this time it had never entered into my heart that all were wrong, and which I should join. 
I was answered that I must join none of them, for they were all wrong. And the personage who addressed me said that all their creeds were an abomination in his sight, that those professors were all corrupt, that they draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They teach for doctrines the commandments of men, having a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. There's a quote that I found in the Institute Manual for the Pearl of Great Price. This is from Elder Boyd K. Packer in October 1971 General Conference. He says, quote, Now this is not to say that the churches, all of them, are without some truth. They have some truth, some of them very much of it. They have a form of godliness. Often the clergy and adherents are not without dedication, and many of them practice remarkably well the virtues of Christianity. They are nonetheless incomplete, end quote. That's something very important to keep in mind, I think. So looking at that phrasing, all their creeds were an abomination in his sight, what does that mean exactly? If you're interested in that topic, may I offer three suggestions? One and I know we've already mentioned it twice, but check out our video, The Great Apostasy, What's So Great About It. We'll link it at the end of the video, but also it'll be in the description. But also there's a couple other articles you might enjoy. There is a place called the Pearl of Great Price Central. Now this is an offshoot of Book of Mormon Central. It's the same guys. They're doing Pearl of Great Price Central. Check it out. We'll put a link in the description. There's an article called Are the Christian Creeds Really an abomination. A great article. It features some great information from Stephen C. Harper, who we talked about earlier in the episode. Also, at the BYU Studies site is an article from a book on the apostasy. The article's by John W. Welch. It's called All Their Creeds Were an Abomination, a brief look at creeds as part of the apostasy, and we'll put a link in the description there. That article is a little more academic, but if you're interested in the topic, you might find that really interesting. Let's go on to verse 20. Speaking of the Lord, he says, He again forbade me to join with any of them. And many other things did he say unto me, which I cannot write at this time. What? <laughs> We've got other things? You know, John actually is the one that pointed this out to me this time. I've read those words a number of times and never really thought about what that means. There's a quote from President Ezra Taft Benson from the Institute Manual on the Pearl of Great Price. It's from the book, The Teachings of Ezra Taft Benson. It says, At no time did Joseph reveal everything he learned in the first vision. Wow. How interesting is that? <laughs> what a tease. Yeah. So we should be grateful for what we have, but let's not assume that we understand the whole story. So he goes on in verse 20. When I came to myself again, I found myself lying on my back, looking up into heaven. When the light had departed, I had no strength, but soon, recovering in some degree, I went home. And in the 1832 account, he says, My soul was filled with love, and for many days I could rejoice with great joy. The Lord was with me. I love that image, that just the encounter filled him with love that lasted for many days. Yeah, that's incredible. Let me just mention something about that. Not everyone's had the opportunity to go to the church history site in New York, the Smith home where the Sacred Grove location is. I hadn't until just a couple of years ago. 
And I'm not one that gets... I guess I should say that I wasn't expecting anything to be special about it. You can think what you will of me. It's a woods. It's a home. I find those places interesting, but I don't expect them to be special in a sense that I would walk up and go, wow, this place has an incredible energy. And in large part, that may be that I just don't have those spiritual gifts. That said, going to the Sacred Grove, expecting nothing but a beautiful forest, which it was, it was a remarkable experience. And both my wife and my son, Ethan, and my nephew, Oliver, who was with us, it was very, very special. And I'll leave it at that. But if you have the opportunity, you may find the same thing visiting that location. Therefore, what? We've read this story. Maybe we've read this story a lot of times. Why is it important to us, except to know that it happened? What are some lessons we learn from the first vision that can help us? Elder Richard J. Maines of the Presidency of the Seventy in a worldwide devotional to the young adults. It was called the Truth Restored. It was delivered in the Salt Lake Tabernacle on May 1st in 2016. He offered an incredible list of 21 truths that we learn from Joseph's experience. If you want the full list, check out the talk. I'll link it in the description. We're going to have a lot of stuff linked in the description, but this yeah. is a really wonderful broadcast. Let me share a few of them that are pretty great. One, we learn that the scriptures are true and can be taken literally and applied to our lives. We learn that pondering the scriptures brings power and insight. We learn that knowledge alone isn't enough. Acting on what we know results in God's blessings. We learn the reality of Satan's existence and that he has actual power to influence the physical world, including us. We learn that Satan's power is limited and superseded by God's power. We learn that we can overcome Satan by calling upon God and putting our complete faith and trust in him. We learn that where there is light, darkness must depart. We learn that Christ is risen. We learn that we're created in God's image. We learn that Jesus Christ is beloved of his Father. We learn that when we care enough to desire God's input in our life, he will reveal a refining course for us. We learn that every dispensation of time receives the visions and blessings and glories of God. We learn that God chooses the pure in heart who are righteous and have righteous desires to do his work, confirming the teaching from the Bible that God looks upon the heart and does not choose based on outward appearance or social status or standing. Again, check out the article for the complete list and his thoughts on these topics. A wonderful thing to realize how personal Joseph's experience can be for our lives. So Joseph had this vision. He was filled with love for many days. And then in verse 21, he mentions that a few days after I happened to be in company with one of the Methodist preachers. Skipping down later into that verse, I took occasion to give him an account of the vision which I had had. I was greatly surprised at his behavior. He treated my communication not only lightly, but with great contempt, saying it was all of the devil, that there was no such thing as visions or revelations in these days, that all such things had ceased with the apostles, and that there would never be any more of them. 
I soon found, however, that my telling the story had excited a great deal of prejudice against me among professors of religion, and was the cause of great persecution, which continued to increase. And though I was an obscure boy of only between fourteen and fifteen years of age, and my circumstances in life such as to make me a boy of no consequence in the world, yet men of high standing would take notice sufficient to excite the public mind against me, and create a bitter persecution, and this was common among all the sects, all united to persecute me. It caused me serious reflection then, and often has since, how very strange it was that an obscure boy of a little over fourteen years of age, and one, too, who was doomed to the necessity of obtaining a scanty maintenance by his daily labor, should be thought a character of sufficient importance to attract the attention of the great ones of the most popular sects of the day and in a manner to create in them a spirit of the most bitter persecution and reviling. But strange or not, so it was, and it was often the cause of great sorrow to myself. From the Institute Manual and the Pearl of Great Price, I came across a favorite quote from William Smith. This was first published in the Deseret Evening News, 20th of January, 1894. He says, quote, we never knew we were bad folks until Joseph told his vision. We were considered respectable till then, but at once people began to circulate falsehoods and stories in a wonderful way, end quote. <laughs> wow. There's another quote from the Pearl of Great Price Institute Manual that talks about why there was so much persecution. This comes from Elder Bruce R. McConkie's book, A New Witness for the Articles of Faith. He says, quote, why should so many religionists unite against an unknown youth of no renown or standing in the community? Would the whole sectarian world shiver and shake and call for a sword if some other unknown 14-year-old youth in an obscure frontier village should claim that he was visited by angels and that he saw the Lord? The problem when Joseph Smith announced such a claim was that it was true and that Lucifer knew of its verity. Is not the persecution itself a witness of the reality of the first vision? Or if it were not true, would the worldly wise and the intellectual religionists today devote their talents and means to defaming Joseph Smith and the work that bears his imprint? What is it to anyone else what we believe, unless they, in their unbelief, fear lest our doctrines are true? and our practices may have divine approval, end quote. So now, is that to say that all other practitioners of religion were serving Satan, were being wicked? No, certainly not. But what's interesting is that that pushback is not an anomaly. It's not new. Think back to the New Testament story of Jesus Christ's day. Who was the church of God? Who were those who were leaders in God's church? One of the groups most prominent was the Pharisees. The Pharisees considered themselves to be the mainstream church, and yet pushback against Jesus Christ is found throughout the New Testament. Why? Who is he? He's a nobody, a carpenter's son from a backwater town. And yet it inspired such attention and such attacks, just like in Joseph's situation. And that's not all. In verse 24, Joseph compares himself to 
the experience that Paul had. And think about Paul in the New Testament, how people reviled against him. And Stephen, why? Who were they of any significance? The point that Joseph makes is that in verse 24, he says, but all this did not destroy the reality of his, Paul's vision. He had seen a vision. He knew he had. And all the persecution under heaven could not make it otherwise. Joseph begins verse 25 by saying, so it was with me. This isn't new. This kind of persecution has happened every time the heavens are opened and new revelation is being brought forth and not from the outsiders. The persecution should be expected if it's going to follow the pattern by coming from God's people. Yeah. And it's a strange human nature thing, but I've seen that a lot in my own life. We become fixed with our own paradigm or our own way of thinking. We no longer see the need to question. When the need to question is presented, we instinctively dismiss it or reject it because we've already answered that question. But why couldn't this simply be dismissed? I find that stress is so often caused when our will does not align with our Father in Heavens. In other words, we are causing the stress by resisting His will. Mm. We must always be humble, teachable. We believe all that God has revealed, all that He does now reveal, and we believe that He will yet reveal many great and important things pertaining to the kingdom of God. We have changes coming. We've seen changes coming in the last two years. Yeah, how are we doing with that? Yep. We need to make sure that we're humble and teachable and can receive that new knowledge from God. Yep. Let's not be found on the opposite side, opposing God and his servants. You know, there was one more quote that I wanted to include from the Pearl of Great Price Institute manual. This is a great story from Elder Hugh B. Brown. It comes from the profile of a prophet. This was a BYU speech given on October 4th, 1955. And I've asked Jay to join me with this. We're going to... I'll be the judge. Yep. So the setting is that Elder Brown finds himself in a situation where he has a conversation with a noted judge. And this is just before the outbreak of World War II. And it starts this way, quote, I began asking, may I proceed, sir, on the assumption that you are a Christian? I am. I assume you believe in the Bible, the Old and New Testament? I do. Do you believe in prayer? I do. You say that my belief that God spoke to a man in this age is fantastic and absurd. To me it is. Do you believe that God ever did speak to anyone? Certainly. All through the Bible we have evidence of that. Then I am submitting to you in all seriousness that it was standard procedure in Bible times for God to talk to man. I think I will admit that. But it stopped shortly after the first century of the Christian era. Why do you think it stopped? I can't say. May I suggest some possible reasons? Perhaps God does not speak to man anymore because he cannot. He has lost the power. Of course, that would be blasphemous. Well, then, if you don't accept that, perhaps he doesn't speak to men because he doesn't love us anymore. He is no longer interested in the affairs of men. No. God loves all men, and he is no respecter of persons. Well then, 
if he could speak and if he loves us, then the only other possible answer, as I see it, is that we don't need him. We have made such rapid strides in science. We are so well-educated that we don't need God anymore. Mr. Brown, there never was a time in the history of the world when the voice of God was needed as it is needed now. Perhaps you can tell me why he doesn't speak. He does speak. He has spoken. But men need faith to hear him. End quote. So good. I love that. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great one. Well, let's get back to the verses. We left off with verse 25. Joseph is saying, I had actually seen a light. And in the midst of that light, I saw two personages, and they did in reality speak to me. And though I was hated and persecuted for saying that I had seen a vision, yet it was true. And while they were persecuting me, reviling me, and speaking all manner of evil against me falsely for so saying, I was led to say in my heart, Why persecute me for telling the truth? I have actually seen a vision. And who am I that I can withstand God? Or why does the world think to make me deny what I have actually seen? For I had seen a vision. I knew it. And I knew that God knew it. And I could not deny it. I had found the testimony of James to be true, that a man who lacked wisdom might ask of God and obtain and not be upbraided. Now, we haven't talked about this, but the word upbraid, most of us have been told about this in the church from primary days, but the word upbraided or upbraideth means to chastise or reprimand or punish for asking. Yeah, and that is a lesson that we learn from the first vision, that God will not upbraid those who desire truth. There's a great article that would be wonderful to help in your studies this week. It's from Michael Madsen from the Priesthood and Family Department. The article was called Lessons from the First Vision. Now, this is from the New Era, April 2017. And I'm going to link you to the article, but I wanted to at least talk to you about the five points that he makes here. And he expounds on these in the article. It's short, but it's really useful as we think about how we can apply this to us personally. Here are five questions he says that you can ask yourself that can help you hear, understand, and respond to heaven's voice. First, he says, have I studied it out? In other words, have I done my homework? Think about Joseph's experience. He speaks of serious reflection, of attending several meetings of various churches, as often as occasion would permit, and of laboring under the extreme difficulties of his dilemma. Number two is, have I looked to see if the Lord already provided the answer? Notice what Joseph said in verse eight. He realized it was impossible for him to come to any certain conclusion on his own. Three, have I searched the scriptures? We know Joseph's experience with that. Have I sought the Lord's answer in a humble, reverent way? We could look to Joseph's example in the first vision here. And then number five, am I willing to act upon the revelation I receive, even if it's not the answer I was expecting? 
Ask yourself these questions as you strive to understand and hear and respond to heaven's voice. I think you'll find it really helpful. Now, we are really fortunate to be here at this time. Recently, we had the celebration in April 2020 of the 200th anniversary of the First Vision. And the First Presidency and Quorum of the Twelve published a new proclamation called the Restoration Proclamation. I wanted to include just an excerpt of it and end our lesson with a very powerful and prophetic declaration of the truth of what we have just been studying. They say, quote, 200 years ago, on a beautiful spring morning in 1820, young Joseph Smith, seeking to know which church to join, went into the woods to pray near his home in upstate New York, USA. He had questions regarding the salvation of his soul and trusted that God would direct him. In humility, we declare that in answer to his prayer, God the Father and his Son Jesus Christ appeared to Joseph and inaugurated the restitution of all things, as foretold in the Bible. In this vision, he learned that following the death of the original apostles, Christ's New Testament church was lost from the earth. Joseph would be instrumental in its return. Two hundred years have now elapsed since this restoration was initiated by God the Father and His beloved Son, Jesus Christ. Millions throughout the world have embraced a knowledge of these prophesied events. We gladly declare that the promised restoration goes forward through continuing revelation. The earth will never again be the same as God will gather together in one all things in Christ. With reverence and gratitude, we as his apostles invite all to know, as we do, that the heavens are open. We affirm that God is making known his will for his beloved sons and daughters. We testify that those who prayerfully study the message of the restoration and act in faith will be blessed to gain their own witness of its divinity and of its purpose to prepare the world for the promised second coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, end quote. And this is something that we too testify knowing the truth of. And it's so exciting to study it again this year and to share our thoughts oh, with you. This has been wonderful. And we're so grateful for the opportunity to share this with you. There was so much to talk about and we left so much out. <laughs> but we put a lot of links in the description. Yep. I hope that you'll enjoy them. And hopefully that'll give you some opportunities to look into this more deeply yourselves and certainly talk about it as a family and with your friends. This is a remarkable vision. This is a pivotal event. It has been said that this is perhaps the greatest event to have happened in human history since the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I hope you'll feel free to share your testimony and insights in the comment section, and we'll look forward to seeing you next week. We'll see you then. This podcast is not officially affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but we're really big fans. <laughs>